0: Guys, what would you think if I become an Instagram mom influencer? Yeah.
1: I'd probably think a lot less of you, honestly. It's kind of shitty. <laughs> that's kind, of a, that's kind of a shitty thing to say. I feel like it's just like
0: desperate, you know? This is my book club. Real ladies at my book club, mostly moms in their 40s with young kids who you read books, drink wine, fruit. and sometimes smoke a little weed. Oh,
2: cool. I follow these people, and it's like, oh, you need this
0: sweater. Do you buy it? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I have, I have too. Allie, what, Allie where, okay, big question, big question. It. Where did you find that tie-dye
1: sweatshirt? From Instagram.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait, so how did this become a job, though? I have no idea. (laughs) Can you tell me how this is a thing? Like, how do you get paid?
0: How are
4: you doing here, ladies?
0: The first thing people ask me when I tell them I'm doing a podcast about Instagram mom influencers is, when did this become a job? The second thing they ask is, how do you make money? And then obviously, how much? The social media influencer industry is only about 10 years old. If Instagram was a person, it would only be in fifth grade. But the idea of influencing is way older. The idea of influencing is a stuffy old man who smokes a pipe and probably smells funny. I'm gonna take you back to the start of women influencing women through media. Consider this episode a history of influencing. How'd we get here? How'd this become a job? What kinds of mothers have been allowed to influence us over the past hundred years? I'm Joe Piazza, and you're Under the Influence. Chapter 2, Women's Work. Hi. Hi. What are you doing? Hiding in the bathroom and barricading the door so my kids can't get in. Good luck with that. Talk
2: fast. Is there a start to all of this? Like, where... Who was the first influencer? Was it Eve? Did she influence Adam to have a bite of the apple? (laughs) How far back are we going?
0: We're not going all the way back to Eve, but there's a lot of places that we could go to get to the start of influencing. And the start point feels really important, but also totally arbitrary. Like we could pick any point in history and women have been influencing other women. But I generally think we should go back to the 19th century to the launch of women's magazines particularly Vogue magazine. Do you know when Vogue launched? I think that Vogue started around the turn of the century, didn't it? Yeah. So we're going back to 1892. I looked up Vogue's early mission, and it was described as this. A magazine that recounted the habits of New York's upper class, their leisure activities, their social gatherings, the places they frequented, and the clothing they wore and everyone who wanted to look like them and enter their exclusive circle. Oh my God.
2: When has upper-class New York not been screwing it up for everybody else?
0: Never. So we've got Vogue, but then we also have Good Housekeeping, which was a little bit earlier. That was 1885. And they launched with the slogan to produce and perpetuate perfection or as near unto perfection as may be attained, wait for it, in the household.
2: (laughs) In the household is always key to these things, isn't it?
0: So the launch of women's magazines is really the modern era of women influencing other women that they didn't know. But magazine editorials and advertising, they were just mirroring what was happening in real life. And this was observed by the 19th century economic philosopher Thorstein Veblen.
5: A brief introduction to the economic theories of Thorstein Veblen.
2: <laughs> we don't talk enough about men. Let's let's talk more.
0: This part's kind of fun for me. A lot of people know that I was once this celebrity gossip columnist. Mm-hmm. But you might not even know this about me. I was also an undergraduate economics major at the University of Pennsylvania. I didn't know that. It's true. I contain multitudes. You absolutely do. To find out more about Thorstein Veblen and how this old dead guy connects to modern day Instagram influencers, I talked to Emily Hund. She's the researcher at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I went to school. She's the one that first connected influencers to this 19th century economic philosopher.
6: Veblen, in the late 19th century, wrote his satirical, almost like critique of the system, the theory of the
5: leisure class. Each class envies and emulates the class next above it in the social scale, while it rarely compares itself with those below or with those who are considerably in advance.
6: He was critiquing how people look to the class above them to decide what they should have.
5: In other words, our standard of decency and expenditure, as in other ends of emulation, is set by the usage of those next above us in reputability, the wealthy leisure class.
0: So what Veblen did is he introduced this idea that human beings always look to the class right above them to tell them how to look, how to act, and what to buy. Vogue, people. We've always been influenced by someone else. It's human nature. And that's why his idea from 100 years ago explains why we can't turn away from influencers today.
6: These portrayals of lifestyle are so cloaked in aspiration. That's, that's what it's all about. You know, you see these beautiful feeds and these wonderful looking products designed to get you interested and to get you to want them. And so it offers the same thing in that followers can have access to these lifestyles that they may not have ever encountered or they may not have even considered
0: were it not for Instagram and for social media. Look, you're probably never going to know what a certain influencer makes or what tax bracket they're in, but the things that they post, the expensive puffy coats, the suede boots, the $1,000 baby strollers, that all makes them seem pretty rich. They all seem richer than me. In Thorstein Veblen's time, drooling over the class that was slightly above you, or a lot above you, desiring their things, it didn't happen all the time. And that's because different classes just didn't collide very often. (laughs) Rich people lived in rich people neighborhoods. Poor people lived in poor people neighborhoods. A lower class person never really went into a rich person's home unless they were working there. The invention of magazines and television changed all that. Suddenly you could see into other people's homes and there was a lot of power in that. The reason I think Thorstein Veblen's theories are so interesting right now is that we can essentially peek inside other people's homes all the time from this little machine that's always attached to the palm of our hands. It's constant, it's never ending. So this
6: danger I think is this colonization of our free or our private time. You're almost never not being sold to or at least feeling the pressure to shop. It's this ideology that we need to be constantly buying things in order to be happy or fulfilled.
0: Today, the never-ending scroll of influencer content finds us everywhere. I scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning while I'm sitting in the bathroom. We give these influencers time that we didn't even know we were giving them. But let's back up just a little bit. So first, women just collided with other women in real life, on the street in the park. But soon, there were magazines, and those let women look at pictures of other women all the time, in the privacy of their own homes. And Then, of course, came television. Suddenly, picture-perfect ideals of motherhood, June Cleaver, Donna Reed, all of their crisp aprons and perfect hair, those showed American mothers what they should be aspiring to. This also gave brands an opportunity to sell things.
7: So I switched to Formula 409 spray cleaner. because 409 cleans... Washing
0: machines, cleaning products, dishwashers, all of the stuff that an aspirational mother should be using. So hello, everybody, hello. Hello, shampoo, hello. But we didn't really see pregnant women on television or in any media until 1953. That's when Lucille Ball got pregnant in real life.
4: Ricky, this is it. This is 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 it!
0: And Lucy and her husband Desi Arnaz, those media geniuses, they decided to write it into their show. The scripts never actually mentioned the word pregnant. Because, ugh, pregnancy.
5: Carrot Top Lucy Ricardo is infanticipating.
0: This might have been the first major must-watch TV moment. See, Desi and Lucy scheduled Real Life Lucy's C-section for the same day that Television Lucy was set to give birth. Almost 75% of the American television-watching population tuned into that episode. That's 44 million people. More people were talking about Lucy giving birth than were talking about the inauguration of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Citizens, the world and we have passed the midway point. The podcast Planet Money actually has an amazing entire episode about this part of Lucy's life. So listen to that if you're curious for more. But for our purposes, this is where things begin. This is where Lucy influenced influence. Lucy and Desi began working with brands to sell you all of the baby things that you saw on the show. The very first issue of TV Guide featured a cover photo of newborn Desi Arnaz Jr. The caption was, Lucy's $50 million baby. Maybe that's the start of mothers influencing other mothers to buy things. To be fair, we saw a wide array of mothers on TV in the 70s and 80s. We saw single moms. We saw messy moms. And sometimes there were no moms at all. That's when motherhood started to evolve. And not for the better. When my mom and her friends were parenting us, we are Gen X and the early millennials, they all sat around smoking while we recklessly ran around the neighborhood, maybe coming home at dinnertime. But in the 90s, moms were given a message that they had to do more. That's when moms were told they had to mom harder, that momming was a full-time job even when you had a full-time job, that you had to give your children your undivided attention all the time or they'd grow up to be sociopaths that skinned the neighbors' rabbits. Also, everyone quit smoking. Claire Kane Miller of the New York Times summed this up beautifully in an NPR interview.
1: Women's labor force participation, the share of women who are working outside the home plateaued in the 90s. And one of the reasons is that parenting has become harder. It's become more time intensive. It's become more expensive. Parents are expected to do more. This has become what most people now say is the right way to parent, is to basically spend as much time as possible with your kid. But whether or not you can afford it, whether or not you have time to do it, most people now agree that this is the best way to do it.
0: There was never enough time. Moms were lonely and stressed and exhausted. They needed help, but their friends were lonely and stressed and exhausted too. Who the hell could they talk to? Who had time? Well, by the 90s, they could go online. Call now for America Online, a new way to use your computer to communicate. So now we're at the turn of another century. Blogging sites like Blogger and LiveJournal were just gaining steam. But take a second and look up the history of blogging on Wikipedia. There's absolutely no mention of mom bloggers. In fact, there's hardly any women mentioned at all. I want to point that out, because how often have women and other overlooked people gone back to history and said, huh, we were there. Where'd you put us? It all depends on who's writing the history, my friends. We've gone through a hundred years of history now. First women influencing women in real life, then in the pages of a magazine, then Lucy licensing all of her baby things on television. Women flocked to the internet in those early days because they were hungry to tell their stories.
7: It was always about community. And it was always about how can we work together to help each other and support each other and be a shoulder to cry on or to help me figure out what the heck to cook with these chicken breasts tonight.
0: That's Cooper Monroe. She's an influencing marketing guru. That is a title. That is but a thing that Social media, the internet, and blogs really Today, Cooper's the to founder and CEO of something created, called The Mother of It's an that agency that connects mom influencers with brands. But back in the beginning of the 2000s, Cooper had just left her fancy corporate PR job in New York City. She moved home to Pittsburgh to raise her young kids. And once she got there, she needed something to do. So she started freelancing for the local newspaper and did a little blogging on the side. Cooper was one of the early mom bloggers you won't read about in Wikipedia. But at the same time she was blogging, I was running around the Lower East Side with men who do get the credit. In the early 2000s, I spent most of my time in bars listening to those guys talk all about blogging and Gawker and MySpace and Foursquare and how they were changing the face of politics, all while watching them do bad karaoke and a lot of drugs. Or as Cooper puts it,
7: There were a lot of young white guys writing blogs about politics and technology.
0: Online, they were all buttoned up and serious. But in real life, they were a fucking mess. Now, in real life, it was the women who were trying to hold it together. But online, they were allowed to be a mess. The sad truth is that no one was taking them seriously. Here's Cooper again.
7: They were talking so honestly from their soul and from their heart and telling these incredibly beautiful, moving, inspiring, funny, hilarious stories stories that were somewhat irreverent um sometimes train wrecks but boy you couldn't turn away you know these these storytellers these bloggers that soon became called condescendingly mommy bloggers started to create a a very powerful community there was no social media there's no twitter no facebook no pinterest instagram wasn't even a glimmer in anybody's eye but in the comment sections were turning into these tiny little worlds that had ongoing conversations and mini-dramas and all the other things in between. We may not have our mom and our aunt, our cousins, sitting around the dinner table with us drinking a cup of coffee, and we may not have neighbors we know, but we can find people we can connect with and get information from and get support from online.
0: In the first decade of the 21st century, the mom blogging community grew into its own mini-social network, complete with its own celebrities. One of the first big stars one of those train wrecks, was Heather Armstrong, the deuce. I freaking loved the deuce. I didn't have kids, and I still loved the deuce. She was an ex-Mormon, and she blogged about sowing her wild oats as a 20-something ex-Mormon living in L.A. She talked about this in an interview with Lance Armstrong. I don't think they're related. And then when I had my baby... Like my traffic tripled in
3: a day and they were like, oh, she has a kid. And is she going to talk about having a kid like she normally talks about life. And that's exactly what I did because I hated
0: what was going on. I mean, I had really bad postpartum depression and I had no idea what I was doing. This kind of honesty is amazing. Saying I started blogging about motherhood because I was lost. I don't feel like we see that today when we look at the internet. Heather Armstrong and her blog, The Deuce, were considered the height of early mom blogging. But even then, this was far from being an industry. After the break, we'll find out about these badass women who took the pioneering steps of turning their side hustle into a full-time job. So now we've gone from picture-perfect moms in magazines to larger-than-life mothers on TV. And then the internet allowed moms to commiserate about what a mess their real lives were, how hard it all was. One of the women doing that was Natalie Levin. How happy are you that you're not a mom influencer in the time of coronavirus? Oh my gosh. You know, I was thinking about this
4: just yesterday. The, the, I would have to be like live streaming things and coming up with like, work out with me. Or I mean, like the, the possibilities for content right now are endless, And that would be exhausting. This is the time to be a private citizen.
0: (laughs) That's Natalie. I talked to her back in March of 2020 in the early days of the pandemic, back when we all thought we'd just be hoarding toilet paper for two weeks. For a lot of Natalie's adulthood, she wasn't a private citizen. She was a weird kind of celebrity on the internet, a mom blogger, and then a mom influencer on Instagram. You might know her by two different names, Nat the Fat Rat, which was her original blog, or Hey Natalie Jean, which was her Instagram account. She started writing on the internet in the early 2000s, just like Cooper Monroe. And she did it for the same reason she was lonely and she craved community.
4: So it was 2003, and George Bush was president.
0: I had
4: just uh, gotten married. And was working in, uh, actually, Lake Oswego, Oregon, with my husband at the time, Brandon. And it was one of those uh, office jobs where you're really bored a lot. And so I had discovered blogging.
0: Blogging cut through Natalie's loneliness and depression. Think of blogging like Zoloft before everyone, including me, was taking Zoloft. She was trying to get pregnant and it wasn't working. But she didn't have anyone to talk about it with.
4: We had a strong community, actually, of those early days. Suddenly I had, like, hundreds of readers and I was getting hundreds of comments on posts my husband was thrilled he thought it was the coolest thing he's like wow my wife is a celebrity or something like that so yeah those those were those things were really fun It was a real lifeline for me, too, because I was infertile for so long and had found other bloggers who were also infertile going through the same things as me. So I was able to, like, announce my pregnancy on the blog and everyone was really excited. It was a really fun time. Up until that point, I mean, we had figured out how to make some money with our blogs kind of by um, working with like independent Etsy sellers or uh, other blogs who wanted to like sponsor you, quote unquote, by paying 50 bucks and then you
0: put up their banner ad. In the beginning of blogging, banner ads were a blogger's only income stream. 50 bucks here, 100 bucks there. Some of the bigger sites like The Deuce were getting paid thousands, and they started actually supporting writers. But a lot of these mom bloggers were writing reviews of products, or they were taking pictures of products. They were essentially giving companies free advertising.
4: When Huck was born, it just exploded. I was getting... All, all this attention from stroller companies and, and, you know, skip hop and here, try this, here, try that. Do you need a breast pump? Do you need a, this? People sending me things.
0: A lot of companies thought they could just throw free product at women because mom blogging was women's work. It was obviously something that women wanted to do out of the goodness of their own hearts. Because women are good people. We just like to do things for other people. Now, if men were running those blogs no one ever would have thought they'd work for free shit.
4: It really preys on women in a lot of the same ways that I think MLMs do, multi-level marketing schemes, because you're, you're approaching women who are primarily stay-at-home moms. So you can say in a casual way, I know you don't take this seriously, so how about if you just you know, take this 12th set of pots and pans and do this? And, and all of us were willing to be like, oh, yeah, okay, that's kind of fun. Why not?
0: But these gifts were not paying Natalie's bills. And after a while, something clicked.
4: One of the bloggers that I read, Gabby Blair, who does Design Mom, she's an amazing, amazing force of a woman. And she started writing occasionally about how, hey, we should be asking for money. We did have this sense that we were kind of creating an environment for everyone else.
0: I love Gabby Blair. I've followed Design Mom forever. But until Natalie told me this, I had no idea how instrumental she was in getting moms paid.
1: My mind, which is, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur, starts going, okay, well, I could really provide a value for a shop that's trying to launch or some, you know, a product that's trying to launch.
0: Gabby's one of the women responsible for getting mom blogging taken seriously. She's a Mormon mom of five, and she was an art director in New York when she went on maternity leave with her fifth kid. That's when she started Design Mom.
1: I'd had enough babies at this point to know that I can absolutely go crazy on maternity leave with all the hormones and the postpartum um, depression and everything if I'm not doing something really creative. But I needed something that didn't require me to be pretty and showered and out of the house that I could really do when I had time, which might be in the middle of the night when I was up nursing or might be when the baby's napping. So it occurred to me blogging could fit that bill.
0: One day, Gabby did a giveaway. It was a pair of earrings that she got from a friend of a friend. She did it because she wanted to grow engagement. She wanted people to comment on her posts. And they did. They wanted those earrings. All of a sudden, Gabby could see the impact she was having on her audience. The commercial impact.
1: It's really where my mind started going, oh, maybe I could turn this into something. Maybe this could be a job. Maybe there's a business here, not just a, a fun outlet, a creative outlet. Ultimately, I never went back to the office after that maternity leave. The the blog took off. And in 2010, it was providing full-time income. I signed with an ad network. It was called Federated Media. That was definitely a game changer because it was like legit full-time income. There's been a few sort of heydays of blogging and that 2010 era was definitely one of them.
0: Cooper Monroe was part of that heyday too after she'd started blogging during my Lower East Side party days. By 2010, she was pushing for women in the Motherhood Network to get paid for working with brands.
7: We started working with a lot of major brands who were testing the waters, dipping their toe in. One thing that we did from the outset is insisted and have never veered from that we were going to pay the women to do this and found that it was vital that they were provided uh, an income for all that they were going to have to do, there's overhead and infrastructure and babysitters and gas and time and effort. And, and there was pushback at the beginning, certainly. But at the end of the day, they are doing work. They're creating something that is of value. And therefore, needs to, they need to be compensated for it. I think now that that is kind of an industry standard, but there were many, many years where that was a real struggle, a real debate.
0: Cooper, Natalie, Gabby, and dozens of other women, they all stood their ground. They all said, we're gonna get paid, or we're not gonna do this. In that era, right around 2010, that marked the rise of sponsored blog content. That means companies paying bloggers to write about their products, to integrate them into their editorial. All of today's mom influencers have these women to thank for the business model that pays their bills. But something else was on the horizon. Something that would change absolutely everything about how women made money on the internet. But first, a quick break. 10 years ago, Instagram slammed into our world like a tsunami of jelly beans. It is no understatement to say that it completely changed the way a lot of us live. And if you were a mom who wrote things on the internet back then, it completely changed how you worked. Sometimes for the better, at least at first. When Huck was about a month and a half, I think, Instagram happened. That's Natalie again. And just like she was with blogging, Natalie was quick to see the potential in Instagram.
4: A friend once looked online, you can see what download you were for Instagram and I was under the 1 million mark and he's an app developer and he thought that was very impressive. <laughs> so, like, I, was, I was right there in the beginning.
0: Goodness, So. Can you believe that Instagram has been around for 10 years now? It's been a decade, a decade since Instagram first completely changed all of our lives.
2: It's wild because on the one hand, you think it's been around forever. And on the other hand, the record of our lives only starts Somewhat recently, and if you were a grown-up when it arrived, it, it was such an, a novel thing. Sometimes when I scroll all the way back on my Instagram, and I remember how revolutionary filters were, and they were so much fun. Especially if you grew up in the heyday of women's magazines, you know, you you could like change the lighting, and you could smooth out your skin, and you could accentuate your features, and it was like, oh, I'm just didn't you know my right angles, like a '40s movie star, like. Ingrid Bergman was only photographed from one side of her face. Like it all suddenly made sense. And you were like, it felt like so much fun and so much control and so much like, oh, now I can edit myself and the world I live in.
0: It was really joyful. And suddenly our lives kind of did look like a magazine photo shoot. We put on the Nashville filter. I was a Valencia person.
2: I was a Sierra person.
0: Oh, yeah. It says a lot about you. It
2: does. It's like a horoscope. (laughs)
0: I talked to Sarah Fryer and she's this Instagram historian. She wrote like this definitive history of Instagram actually called No Filter. And she said something that really stuck with me, that this has been a decade of completely reshaping what we value in our society.
3: Ten years of reshaping who we aspire to be, how people judge their relevance in society. This has been an app that has so shifted our sense of self and our measures of success in our modern world. What filters have done is they've trained us to accept that it's possible on Instagram to portray your life as more beautiful or perfect than it actually is. Everything we put there has a a strategic nature to it. It is something that is polished or beautified beyond what our regular lives are. And so is it still art or is it an ad?
0: Instagram was never set up to be an advertising platform. The adorable little man founders of Instagram wanted to create a platform for photography, for art, A way to let normal people take professional-looking photos that looked way better than real life. But in the beginning, there was no way to link these pictures to sell anything. The founders actually thought ads were pretty gross.
3: The Instagram founders initially were a little bit horrified by this. Having billboards across this beautiful art space that was Instagram would just make it completely unusable, they feared.
0: But like most people in Silicon Valley, they eventually began to think about the bottom line. By 2014, Instagram had 300 million active users, and the co-founder Kevin Systrom finally admitted that Instagram could be good for advertising.
5: What we should do is take it slowly, decide which advertisers will set the bar high, which I think you've seen with you know companies like Hollister, Ben & Jerry's, Lexus. Right. Those companies, I think, get Instagram because they have an organic presence. And what that does is it creates a really wonderful Like loop, it's a feedback loop, and I think that's created a virtuous cycle.
0: But he still didn't want ads that looked like ads—not like the in-your-face shit that was on Facebook. By the way, this is just two years after Instagram was acquired by Facebook. Systrom talked about ads on Instagram in a CNBC interview with Julia Boorstin.
5: When you open up a Vogue magazine and you flip through and you see beautiful advertising and beautiful content, that's the type of feeling we want to evoke. So we've stayed away from some of the other stuff up until now, but I won't count it out.
0: It all goes back to vogue, doesn't it? This is when perfection started to creep back into the influencing world. When internet moms stopped showing their messy lives and started displaying beautiful magazine-style lives. Just like at the end of the 19th century. History repeats itself.
3: So really, he was fine with the fakery, the manipulation that people were doing with branded content, as long as they weren't explicitly saying, buy this thing for 50 bucks because who wants to be sold so directly to? And so that's how it really evolved. It was this like very subtle, almost unclear whether it was an ad or not. And in that way, it was more effective. And so I think that that vibe really shaped the influencer industry to where people would tout products alongside their audiences, but they wouldn't necessarily say, this is an ad. (laughs) They would say, I shot this with my Samsung camera. They wouldn't tell you that Samsung paid them to do that. That was something that influencers didn't think was unethical because they would say, oh, I would never work with brands that I didn't personally like. But everyone has a price and everyone needs to pay the bills.
0: This kind of advertising had to be more compelling than your regular TV ad. Harder to look away from because there was so much else to look away to. They were much closer to the glossy Vogue ads. And the genius thing that Instagram influencers did was craft advertisements that didn't look at all like advertisements. They just looked like life. An airbrushed and beautiful sort of life. And this new world of sponsored content was great for Natalie Levin. Natalie's family needed money. Her side hustle could no longer just be an adorable hobby because they lived in New York. And her husband had 200 grand in student loan debt. The good news is that Natalie was ready made for Instagram. She was cute. Her kid was cute. Her husband was cute. Her house was cute. Instagram was a platform that loved cute.
4: Suddenly, I was learning that everything I saw was content. That changed the way I did everything because. Now I wasn't picking bedding because it was what I liked. I was picking bedding because it was what I liked. And also, does anyone else have anything like this? Um, how is this going to photograph? Do I have a link? Can I link to this and get an affiliate off of it? I was walking around New York City all the time, so I was in great shape. Clothes were like sent to me all the time, so I was always playing dress up with things. And it was like, wow, I can, I can afford to have someone come clean my house once a week, so I don't have to do it.
0: Side note. Ask accountant if I can write off house cleaner when I become a mom influencer.
4: A big sea change was when um, talent agencies decided to pick up bloggers. They were just expanding what they could represent in the media. I don't even know what kind of blogger you would have called me. Now they call it lifestyle bloggers. I was told I was a mommy blogger.
0: This is when things started to take an ugly turn for Natalie. Natalie when mom influencing was no longer fun. No longer fun for Natalie, but also no longer fun for a lot of women.
4: Instagram ruined women for a time. It kind of felt like I had just like peeled off my skin and I didn't exist anywhere because I was everywhere.
0: Don't worry, you're going to hear that whole story from Natalie in a later episode. But right now, I want to talk about the agents. The switch about seven years ago when Hollywood agents started picking up a new breed of client. There were more celebrity magazines than ever. I know, I made them. There were more celebrity websites than ever. So to fill that giant content hole, there had to be more celebrities than ever. And it was as if those of us who worked in the gossip industry just created them from scratch. Suddenly, you were reading about socialites, reality television stars, the ninth girl thrown off The Bachelorette. All of these new celebrities immediately got agents and started selling you things. And this is when we started seeing the rise of personal branding as a business. Paris Hilton, God freaking bless her, she really pioneered this. But the Kardashian clan, they perfected it. They created an empire. And now in 2013, 2014, mom bloggers and influencers were also becoming celebrities. They had a following too, and people were buying the things they recommended. Agents wanted some of that money. Here's Cooper again.
7: The stakes were so high and the expectations were so high, that got kind of a little out of control. It was funny because the, the, the corporate angle was reach, 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 scale, scale, scale. How do you scale this? I mean, there was endless amounts of conversation around how do you scale, quote unquote, the mommy bloggers? And I read that in 2017 or 2018, 475 influencer agencies opened up in the United States. I mean, some insane number like that.
5: We signed an influencer exclusively as their agent kind of on a whim, and we kicked butt uh, with that first influencer. And that first influencer, within the first three months, brought in close to 20 influencers. That's Joe Gagliese.
0: He's the founder of something called Viral Nation. They're another influencer agency that came on the scene about
5: seven years ago. We were kind of off to the races, really at a great time when there was only a couple companies representing influencers. From there, it just kind of grew exponentially over the first year. and We were representing hundreds of influencers and working through all these deals for them. And just like Brad Pitt would have an agent, we were doing the same thing. Brands were hungry for moms. They couldn't get enough of them. You know, these mom influencers and lifestyle influencers really represented a key component for what brands were looking for. Um... Mom influencers, as you know, in just general marketing, are a much more lucrative category than millennials, right? Um, they have a lot more buying power. They can represent, you know, larger brands. They're usually very PG rated in their content. Good brands really love authentic moms. Um, moms are generally, you know, in the marketing world, seen as the anchor of the household, decision makers, um, you know, they, they play a lot of roles, not in, only in the child's life, but in their family life and in their purchase decisions and in lifestyle and fashion and beauty.
0: To put that in perspective, moms make about 85% of household purchases in the U.S. They have a yearly buying power of approximately $2.4 trillion. That is some power, bitches.
5: You know, any time a brand can get new exposure to the mom space in a way that's unique and organic, they're going to take it, which is why I think the influencer mom space uh, really evolved uh, pretty quickly.
0: Suddenly, there were even business conferences where moms and brands could collide in person and cut deals.
1: Mom 2.0 is the best conference for women in social media. This is where the professional storytellers are. This is where I get to hear not just what their stories are, but what their relationship is to their stories, how they're making a business out of their stories.
0: Gabby Blair of Design Mom, she was instrumental in helping launch Mom 2.0 and her own conference, Alt Summit. And from the very start, again, she put her foot down. She told brands that if they wanted to come to the conference, they had better be ready to pay these mothers.
1: We were really careful about the sponsors we would bring. Part of the vetting process was, are you ready to work with these women? Are you ready to pay them? Of course, you were welcome to give them swag like any conference sponsor likes to do. Wonderful. But are you ready to hire them? And women would leave Alt Summit with contracts, with contacts that they would then, you know, get sponsorships that would last, you know, it might be their income for the year. Like it was serious business going down. There are serious contracts being made. There are development deals happening. People are going to get TV shows from this. People are going to get contracts with Home Depot or Lowe's that are going to last years, you know, a, a decade for some people at this point. So all Summit it was huge. And, and I can say the same kind of parallel was happening at Mom 2.0. For somebody who's interested in coming to Mom 2.0, I would say it's the best investment you can make in yourself.
0: That brings us... To right now, a time when influencers on Instagram sell billions of dollars of products to women from a little machine that sits in the palm of their hands.
2: Joe, now that you've done your history work, has it changed your feelings on getting involved in this world, or does it give you a clearer idea of what you are undertaking?
0: I think what it's showing me is that this is a job. This is a content job. This is a world of women entrepreneurs who are essentially creating magazines for you every day. Anyone with a big following on Instagram is essentially creating their own media empire. You have launched magazines
2: before, and you've launched magazines about celebrities. Like, you have a very comprehensive understanding of what packaging, branding, storytelling marketing involves. So does understanding Instagram in this way make you
0: more interested in getting into this world or less? More because the money that's being made off Instagram is money that used to be made in magazines. It's money that I used to make and I've applied for jobs in magazines now and I have not gotten them. So yeah, I wanted, I want to do this. I actually, I blurted out to Cooper Monroe. I was like, do you think I can do this? What do you What do you think about me? And she was so nice in her answer.
7: This is what she told me. Well, I mean, Joe, what I've seen and, and heard from you is that you care deeply about women and about telling the stories of women and about empowering women and lifting them up. And that feels like it's a place of real passion and importance for you. You telling these stories using a, a platform where you've got people showing up every day um, is very powerful because you come from a place where you have to tell it. It's it's what drives you. That's why you're on the planet. It it I don't know. That's I I know it's kind of a Pollyannish thing to say, but for somebody to feel fulfilled in doing this, sharing what you know and care about with people is is where you're going to find that. And then the monetizing can follow, <laughs> but that can't be what's leading you there. I've got stories to tell.
0: I know how to build a magazine. I know how to build a brand. I'm less comfortable with putting my face out there all the time. I like writing stories about other people. And I think the biggest hurdle is going to be writing about myself. There's also this other really interesting thing. When Cooper said, you have a story to tell, you have a story to share. Edgar Allan Poe once said something, and I'm going to bastardize this quote, that people wanted to read short stories, Because they they just didn't have the attention span to read a novel anymore. And I'm going to take that even further and say we don't have the attention span to read a short story or a news article, but we can read an Instagram caption. This is where we're at in terms of content. And so because I've got these stories to tell, there's no reason I shouldn't get paid for it or I shouldn't try to get paid for it. But I I genuinely have no idea what the fuck I'm doing.
2: Well, Joe, holder of multiple master's degrees, (laughs) if only, is there like a school somewhere that can
0: teach you? I feel like that's the next logical step for you is to
2: go to school for
0: this. Funny you mentioned that, (laughs) Glynis. I'm actually sort of joking, but is there? There's a place that you can go to learn to be an influencer. And every influencer I've talked to has called it the The Harvard of social media influencing. Are you
2: kidding right now?
0: I'm not kidding you. And next week, I'm going to go to the Harvard of social media influencing because I love school. I cannot wait to see Joe at influencing Ivy League. (laughs) The influencing Ivy League. What? Like it's hard? Under the Influence is reported and hosted by me, Joe Piazza. Our story editor is Glynis McNichol. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Production assistance came from Mary Dew. Sound design by Emily Marinoff, Jessica Kreinchich, and Julian Willer. Our theme and additional music was composed by Jessica Kreinchich. Additional research was conducted by Jocelyn Sears. Julian Willer is our consulting producer, and Mangesh Shitikador is our executive producer. And special thanks to Erin Kaufman, who was the wonderful voice of Thorstein Veblen, and Sarah Fryer for her very comprehensive history of Instagram.